Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. I love fishing and I want to share my interests with others, but I also don't want to be a D-bag about it. Step one, insert your favorite and tastiest bait into our copper protected spring bulb. He started asking me about Sasquatch and I was like, okay, this is this is really strange. I've heard there's a Senko shortage. So all those people, probably ain't none of them had a four inch root beer Senko. Good morning, degenerate anglers. Welcome to Bent, the fishing podcast that's connected by contradictions, nourished by non sequiturs, buoyed by buffoonery and flourishes on flotsam. I'm Joe Cermelli. <laughs> I'm Miles Nolte, and I can't believe Joe actually read that intro. You know, I, re- I, ah, I really should have vetted that before we started recording, but I was busy this morning. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, now you know. And knowing is half the battle. Uh, battle iterations aside, this episode really is like a hodgepodge of oddities, much like what you might find lodged in the rocks and logs and weed beds. If you did some snorkeling at your local lakes this summer, which I recommend if you've never done that. And it got me thinking about a conversation that that we've had on and off over the past year between the two of us and and also with our buddy Ryan Callahan about the things we throw in the water. And Mm. when I say we, I don't mean I don't mean the collective we, the the editorial we. I'm not talking about society in general and pollution. (laughs) I'm I'm I mean you and me, anglers. People yes. who fish. We got we got this email recently from a listener named Jason Keller who sent us photos of a chunk of tire, like rubber tire. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That he'd found I in the Lake Trout's yep. stomach. Yeah. And I think Jason summed up the situation pretty eloquently in, in his message. He wrote, while I was both surprised and slightly disturbed to find what appeared to be a rubber tire inside a Lake Trout's stomach, it dawned on me that I have spent literally my entire life attempting to forced feed numerous types of aquatic animals, every kind of plastic, metal, or rubber bait that I could think of, 
I could not even begin to count how many plastic imitation eggs, swim baits, twister tails, flukes, or other various types of imitation bait I have left snagged in the rocks or broken off in some fish's mouth. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know what? I think that's a perspective that anglers, uh, we just don't often think about. And nope. I know for me personally, right? If I break off on a rock pile or whatever, my first thought is just like, God damn it. That was a perfectly good paddle tail. And inevitably, it's like I've only got two left in bone white, which is all that's working today. <laughs> uh, and it's it's very selfish. It's a very selfish reaction. Um, but I I, I I rarely give much thought to what happens to those rigs once once I break them off. I'm yeah. just being completely honest, you know. Like that's what we've been discussing. That's that's what this is all about, right? Yeah. And I'll say this: even if even if I've got a ton of say I've got a ton of whatever bait, I've got a ton of the bone white paddle tails that are working, and I break one off. I'm still annoyed, but I'm annoyed that now I have to spend valuable time that I could be fishing on re-rigging, right? Oh. I'm not thinking about the thing that that is now sitting at the bottom of the lake. Yes. No, you're exactly right. And we've had multiple conversations on this show about removing lures and line from trees. Um, we've even talked about there was the uh, the kid in, in Vegas who's got his own this is like a little cottage industry <laughs> going harvesting the fruits of other anglers' misfortune and laziness. Um but we really haven't gone into the depths, so to speak, mm-hmm. you know. And for good reason, I think, right? Because because in many ways, this is like this is like one of those dirty little secrets for anglers who care about conservation. The the thing that we want to hide and don't want to think about. Like it's yeah. It's a grown-up version of whatever illicit things you used to have hidden under your mattress or at the back of your closet when you were a teenager, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, I think I mean the kids the kids they just have to worry about what's in their browser history, you know what I mean? It's that's but, which is which is a shame because like like our sons are not going to hide anything under the radiator. You know what I mean? In their room, they they might, but it might be different things. <laughs> I don't know. But and those kids, you're, you're, the browser history thing's true. But I I would venture to guess that those kids today are probably just as worried about getting found out even digitally mm-hmm. as we were. So yeah. so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with my analogy. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say shame is universal. And as we get older. The things that shame us, they just shift. They don't go yeah. away. We're still yeah. we're still dealing with it. I'm I will admit I'm the guy. I'm that guy who who usually picks up at least a few pieces of trash when I go fishing. Like I, right. I get like, oh, here's a can and a bottle and some plastic. And I get to feel all proud of myself about it. But I only I only get to do that 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 high and mighty thing because I can't see all the trash that I personally leave behind. Because my yeah. litter is underwater. It's yep. out of sight, out of mind, so I can like hold my little old half rotten can and be like, I'm a great person, but I'm still leaving all kinds of unnatural materials where they don't belong. And as I get older, I'm, I'm thinking more and more about that. I am. Sure. Tell you what, we'll take a quick pause from, from, from your little trip down shame lane, okay, <laughs> to remind all of you that this podcast is fully outfitted by 13 Fishing, makers of fine rods, reels, and tackle. Indeed. Indeed it is. And, and one of the ways bringing this back one of the ways i've tried to avoid that <laughs> shame lately is by fishing their jabber jaw square bill crankbaits mm-hmm. in addition to being very loud and, and noisy which is cool well, another benefit of the square bill design is that it deflects off of stumps and rocks and logs and other cover so you can you can throw it where the fish are with less chance of getting snagged i've been hitting up a few of the the secret lakes here lately and i can report that the smallies approve 
Yeah, like to be one. honest, I, I've never been like a huge crankbaits guy, but those are good. I those like those. Good. And best of all, even if you do break one off, okay, you, you won't also break the bank replacing it. So even if you share Miles' personal issues with losing lures, uh, you only have to deal with, with one layer of self-hatred. Uh, self, <laughs> self-hatred might be a little extreme. I'm not okay. like I'm not like carrying a leather strap with me and and <laughs> marking my back with self flagellation every time I lose and get a lure. You a switch, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but thinking about thinking about all of this, right? Thinking about this stuff, I it it hasn't stopped me from fishing, right? Mm-hmm. It hasn't. It's not like I'm like I'm I'm so stuck with this issue that I can't fish anymore, or that I'm I'm not willing to make a cast into deep cover. Where, where the fish are because I might lose a lure. I still play the risk reward game, but I am right. I am more likely to go in after a lure than I used to be. Hmm. I, even if it's like a shitty cheap lure, I don't I'm not like, well, that's a cheap one. I'll break it off anymore. And I'm like, I don't want to leave that there. Or or I'll get right on top of it and use one of those goofy lure extracting poles. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm about? Like mm-hmm. and yep. and that'll totally blow a spot, right? If you do that, you're giving up a spot. But I'm, I do that more than I used to. Have you, have you ever used one of those pole lure extractors? I, I've never tried one of the ones that that's a pole, but I, I have tried um, those those kind. And there's all different variations um, that you slide down your line. You pull your line tight. I've never got those because if it doesn't work, then then you lose the lot the extractor too, right? That's correct. And I would say the ones I had worked about thirty percent of the time, and then I'd just get that snag too. Yeah, and then I would lose. Uh, that thing plus the lure. So yeah, not something I've had on hand. Don't really believe in them. Like I don't really think they work. Uh, but I do think, right? I do think your concern is a little misplaced because if if I'm being honest, I don't really think hard baits are like the big issue. Really, it's soft plastics and lead jig heads that mm-hmm. are the things I personally think about. Mm-hmm. Um, and matter of fact, right? Just last week, I joined a buddy uh, of mine who invited me to partake in kind of like a hush hush catfish deal. Uh, a jig bite for flatheads, which I was very mm. fascinated with. And the fishing was kind of off that night, which doesn't bother me in the least because that's fishing. Um, but this spot was shallow and rocky and and super jagged rock too, like flat, crisscross, boulder, really jagged rock. And I busted off easily 12 jigs in an hour and a half, right? And it was, really? it was mad. Yeah, it was maddening. Like you were talking about... Um, how you're just also pissed when you lose something because now you have to retie. Yeah. So this would be like you need a long shock leader and like a really strong braid to to lead or not. So I I was just absolutely frustrated and and maddened. Um, but I started thinking about how much lead and plastic must just be in this one little niche area in yeah, this I, river, and it's got to be lost insane. Twelve in an hour and a half, I, dude. Like, I I think I think the most retreat because. And I don't, we don't have to go on all the details, but you needed like a three quarter or one ounce to cast where you needed to cast and get where you needed to get for these fish sitting on the bottom. So you couldn't throw like a little twister tail. Mm-hmm. It's a big ass flathead. You need a strong right. hook. They're going to respond to a big plastic twitching on the bottom. Yep. Um, and I don't know if it was the spot I was in or what it was, but I, I, I think 10 retrieves was the most I got out of a lure before I was hopelessly. Was everybody around up. you breaking yes. off? Yes. Oh. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's just like, you know, kind of comes with the territory. Um, but but contrary, because I've heard people say this, contrary to what some people think, 
The vast majority of soft plastics don't biodegrade. No. I know there's biodegradable no. ones out there, but you have to, but you have to opt out. into that. Yeah. You have to opt into that, right? It's not the default. Um, yeah, the regular ones remain intact in the water for, for years before breaking down into microplastics. And while fish, I don't know, they're probably not going to eat like a lifeless spinnerbait or crankbait that's wedged in the rocks, right? But no. they very well might eat a Senko. Or like a torn up creature that's that's quivering down on the bottom, you know, the current yeah. can move that around and totally. actually make it twitch. And they look lifelike. They, yeah, exactly. That's yeah. why we purchased them. So they, <laughs> you know, just saying. No, that definitely happens. That that's that's a thing that 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 absolutely happens. And I'm not I'm not an expert on this. I've read about it some, but from what I can tell, it seems like it's heartening back to the first story of the email. It seems like Lakers especially like to munch. Oh, tossed yeah. out soft plastics and that's probably just because they eat almost anything and they're usually yeah. cruising around the bottom but they're not the only ones all kinds of fish have been documented eating cast off soft plastics I've, I've read a couple studies over the years about this and mm-hmm. and some of them shown those those soft plastics right as they stay in the water they swell up they absorb water mm-hmm. and they can swell up so much that they can they can actually block fish's digestive tracts so effectively preventing that fish from eating anymore which is a bad deal um so i'm 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 with you i couldn't agree with you more on the soft plastics point i mean i hope everybody out there already knows don't just toss your used soft plastics yeah over the side into the water i know that used to be common but we don't do that anymore and there's there's good reason and if you're still doing it please stop but i the the other thing is i actually fish I actually fish soft plastic less than I used to because of thinking about this. I still use them. It's not like I'm against them. I'm not anti. I don't refuse to use them. They're just not my go-to. If I can get away with something else, I do. And when and when I fish them, I'm I, I make a couple of changes, like slight changes. I'm I'm quicker to to swap out a body if it's starting to get chewed mm. up, right? Mm-hmm. If it's like I, I don't I used to fish them till they fell off, and I don't right. do that anymore. Right, and and the other thing I do if I if I'm if I'm gonna do a wacky rig, I used to think using the O rings was stupid and kind of lame, and then I realized that you do that because you don't tear up the bait and you lose a lot fewer of them. Mm-hmm. And when you use the O rig, you you just toss out less senkos. So they're not perfect solutions, but those are those are the things that I'm doing to minimize the opportunities for my baits to turn into underwater sure. shit. And I genuinely commend all of that. And and similarly, I, I try to avoid losing too many baits. But at the same time, soft plastics are my go-to. Like there, yeah. there's there's they just work. there's no there's no way around that. And maybe it makes me a like a, a, a bad person. I don't know, but it's just a fact. <laughs> and just off the top of my head, like I can't think of anything I target with the exception of maybe like tuna, where I could be just as effective if I took soft plastics out of the repertoire entirely. And, yeah. you know, it's just, that's just how it is. Rubbing is racing, as Days of Thunder taught <laughs> oh. us. And and we're, we're going to lose them. Like, you're going to lose some. Um, but as Miles mentioned, this episode, it's, it's going to be kind of like strapping on a mask and scouring the bottom of your local city pond. You never know what you're going to get. And first off, we've got Smooth Moves, where we invite guides, charter captains, shop rats, and anyone who makes their living in the fishing industry to tell us stories of the most ridiculous shit they've experienced on the water. And this week, we're talking to a mostly retired guide, Joe Willauer, about a guide trip he ran in Washington that he wishes he could forget. Why did you do that? Why? Why did you do that, Terry? Oh, my God. All right, today on Smooth Moves, 
We are joined by Joe Willauer. Joe, thanks for taking some time to be here today. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you guys. Yeah, man. I I don't think we've ever like actually physically met, but we run in a lot of the same circles. Like I've I've heard your name just scattered around the guide grapevine for I don't know, like ten years or so, something like that. And and I think I got this right. You're from Washington, and and that's where that's the area where you started your guide career, right? Yeah, that's correct. I was really fortunate. It uh, helped me go through college, best guy, best college job ever, and then finished up school <laughs> and kept guiding because it's still the best job ever. And transitioned <laughs> out of it a few years ago when we found out we were having kids, but still keep a little bit of a toe in it because it's uh, as addicting a thing as I've ever found in my life. Yeah, dude. Like you're well. Now you're in you're in Twin Bridges, right? You've been in Twin Bridges for how long? A dozen years. A dozen years. So you're like a unicorn. Seriously, <laughs> dude, you are because you you came you you like you came out of the fishing industry and and you turned into a productive, healthy member of society as the executive director for the Butte Local Development Corporation. Like, congratulations, man. Nobody nobody does that. <laughs> Thank you. You know, there's a couple there's a couple reasons behind that. And one uh, is my good friend, Casey Dudley. Him and I would always joke, if you want to get to the front of the boat, you got to get out of the middle. And I always, uh, I mean, I love guiding, but I also love the idea of standing in the front and casting uh, equally as much, honestly. Like, I love being able to show people the rivers and the cool places we get to hang out. But I also love the concept of going somewhere I haven't been and actually having the rod in my hand. And then from the guiding world, I had a really good mentor who uh, really pushed me. And he's like, you know, as a fishing guide, you have these unbelievable communication skills. Like you've sat in the middle of a drift boat and told CEOs from companies around the world what to do all day long for most of your adult life. Like that's a fantastic skill set for the professional world. So if you can find a place to put that to use, you're going to kick ass. And I've been very fortunate to have some opportunities to go do that. I was gonna say, I was gonna say, Miles, like you, come on, man, like you, you've you've landed well too as a former guy. Look, look <laughs> where you are right now. Yeah. I'm still in the <laughs> industry. True. I didn't, I didn't get out That's of the true. industry. Okay, but I think, I think the way you put that is 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 well said, Joe. Because like, I think a lot of guides, all guides for the most part, have that experience you're talking about, but not all that many can articulate it that way and, yeah. and frame it that way, and and then be able to leverage it into something else. So I'd say kudos to that. And the the story, whatever the story is, the, the real reason we've got you here is that a mutual friend of ours, Josh Mills, uh, he told me, he like called me up and was like, ah, Will Hours got this guide story. It would be perfect for the show. <laughs> and I have not heard. I have not heard the whole story. I just got a couple of snippets, and and I, I would describe them as tantalizing. So let's just do this, man. Let's jump in. What do you got for the smooth moves? Absolutely. And I, I want to preface it with, as a fishing guide, it's always fun to be able to dunk on clients. Like... <laughs> you know, you finish your guide day, you sit around and you drink a beer. These days, a white claw, which kind of fractures my brain. And, uh, you know, you talk some trash about them. You know, they're going over to the bar and they're talking trash about you. Like, man, my guide was so hung over this morning. I don't think he gave a crap about us catching any fish. So it's definitely a mutual thing. But before I dunk on this guest, um, I will preface it with, I've ran a couple thousand guide trips. The number of clients that I would not fish with out of 15 years of guiding is three. I mean, that's it. So yeah, 98% of the folks we get to fish with are fantastic. I've made lifelong friends. I've got a tattoo from a fly that a client of mine recommended. But there's also a couple that definitely deserve um, to be featured in this. And so 
For this story, it goes back to my days on the Yakima. And if you're familiar with the Yakima, it's a, it's a great fishery, but compared to some of the other Western rivers, I mean, it's not the green with 10,000 trout per mile. It's not the upper Madison with two foot brown trout swimming around. It's a great river. It's a fantastic dry fly river, but it's just not, it's not the same thing as some of these other rivers that fortunately I get a fish now. And with this gentleman, uh, I knew it was going to be an interesting day when he hopped in my truck. The first things out of his mouth, and I was driving an old F-150 at the time, was, man, this F-150 is an effing piece of shit. You need to get a GMC. <laughs> and it's like, okay, <laughs> this is weird. Um, it's a pickup. It's better than my old Explorer I had two months ago that blew up on the side of the river and I lost my transmission. <laughs> like, I, it's it's a truck. I, I don't give a crap. And we're going down into the Yakima Canyon, which is a gorgeous piece of water. And we hadn't even made it about a mile from the shop. And he goes, man, this Eastern Washington's the ugliest effing piece of shit I've ever seen. It's full of nothing but hillbillies <laughs> oh. and rednecks. I mean, this is where I grew up. And so that I, I, I don't even know that it was strike two at that point, but it was like, this is going to be an interesting two days. Um, but I, I mean, at the time, you know, I was guiding full time. I wasn't in a position to turn away a dime. I mean, full-time fishing guide. It's like, yeah, great. I've got four months to make money and then hopefully find something to do in the winter that I can pay rent. We get down to the river and we launch and there's a big blue wing hatch blowing up and fishing's pretty easy, which the ACMA, I was fortunate to learn there. It's a challenging river. It makes fishing around here in Montana really easy because when you're trying to catch one of a thousand trout a mile and then you go to 4,000 trout a mile, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. Catches a couple fish right away and he goes, man, this river's just like the green, full of dumb effing trout. It's like, okay. (laughs) And so at that point, it's like, you know, I I need this money, but this is going to be pain. And fished all day, whatever, you know, caught some fish, not worried about it. And then the next day is where it really got weird. And we're floating (laughs) along and the river blows out from under us. And every river in the state blew out that week. I mean, Seattle to Pullman, everything was toast. And so I've got two hours to row out with this guy. And he makes, he may, honestly, he made some really unsavory comments about some more things. And what really put it over the edge for me, and the only reason I would ever dream about fishing with him again, at the time I would go guide in the winter in the Washington's Olympic Peninsula, which I'm not a Sasquatch believer. I'll throw that out there. Me but either. If one is a sas, if one is a Sasquatch believer, he probably lives near Forks with the vampires. And he started asking me about Sasquatch, and I was like, "Okay, this is this is really strange." I mean, this is a 65, 70 year old man that's asking me about Bigfoot. And so at that point, it's like you know, you've dunked on my state, you've dunked on my truck, you've dunked on my river. <laughs> I don't really care that much anymore, unfortunately. And I just fed into it a little bit. And he's like, so you've spent some time out there, right? I was like, oh, yeah, you know. It's like, have you ever seen him? And I was like, well, gosh, we were floating the whole canyon one day. And the shape just kind of appeared out of the woods. And I never saw him. And he's like, oh, do you practice yoga? And for those, you can't <laughs> see me. I'm, I'm six foot five and 250 pounds. No one in my life has ever mistaken me for doing yoga. And uh, he's like, oh, yeah, those the folks that do yoga have higher alpha brainwave counts. And they have a higher probability of seeing Sasquatch. Definitely one of the weirder guide trips I ever put on. And uh, one, I mean, this was, yeah, 15, 20 years ago. One I'll never, ever, ever forget. 
So I don't believe in Sasquatch, but now I have to know, like, this guy, had he seen him? If he was that into it, like, was he one of those Sasquatch dudes that's looking? You know, I I tried to block a lot of that day out of my memory. <laughs> 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 and so I don't specifically remember that, but uh, it wouldn't be surprising to me if he was, yeah, on a Sasquatch safari at some point. I, what I'm curious about is, like, did you ever get any information on what he meant by alpha brainwaves and how alpha brainwaves impact your ability to, to see Sasquatch? Yeah, that sounds like acid trip stuff. Like, take this and you'll ride the snake. It's like alpha. Like... <laughs> Even hearkening back to this, once we go into details, there's definitely some PTSD there. Because like I said at the beginning, I... I've ran a ton of guide trips and it's all really cool folks. I mean, the folks like this are the vast exception and I've done a pretty good job of compartmentalizing that and vacating most memories other than just the batshit crazy stuff that I heard. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough, man. Fair enough. Well, I think, I think the, the takeaway on this one, if, if there is one is that alpha waves will help you see Sasquatch and you should all do yoga if you're hoping to get there. And uh, if you want to have a good day with your guide, probably don't shit on his truck, his river, and his state all at the beginning of it. That's that, that's good advice right there. Never a good start. <laughs> Alpha waves. <laughs> Bigfoot, yeah. huh? That damn Sam Squanch. Sam Squanch. <laughs> you stole my jerky. Uh, I will say that my years of guiding reinforce for me that you don't actually have to be smart to get rich (laughs) like the phrase (laughs) more money than sense came Mm -hmm. to mind from time to time like joe was very careful to point out many i would say i would say the vast majority of the people i guided are highly intelligent humans great people but not all and i'm not (laughs) i'm not claiming to be the smartest guy on the planet i'm definitely not but I, there were definitely days where I was sitting there being like, you are so much more wealthy than I am, and I know I'm so much smarter than you. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Why don't we give you an opportunity to demonstrate that intellect you're so certain of? Uh, <laughs> in the weekly battle of wits, we call Fish News. Fish News! That escalated quickly. We got a fun uh, little announcement to share with you guys before we get in the news here. Uh, By now, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the fish, eating fish, eating fish. That's what we call it. Eating Eating fish. fish graphic (laughs) drawn by our good buddy Mike Suda for the Meat Eater Fishing Sticker. That's the first place you saw it. I know some of you have that sticker. Some of you have gotten it from us because we've been sending a bunch out Mm -hmm. um, in our bent sticker packs. That graphic is also on the header of our Fishing Weekly newsletter, and guess what? It's now on T-shirts and hoodies at the Meat Eater store. Yeah. You're excited. Yeah. Be excited. I, I, I am. I'm excited. <laughs> I, I hope that everybody I else. Am. like They're slick, man. And, I mean, I do love T-shirts and hoodies in general, but you, you got to be careful. Like Your T-shirt and hoodie has to represent you. Absolutely. And I feel like this one very much represents both of us. Yes. And... I think it represents a lot of you out there. I think once you see it, you're going to say, yeah, that, that's me. And there's a strong chance that we're going to be giving some of these away as uh, you know giveaway items in the near future. Also a strong chance you guys will be able to snag some official degenerate angler gear from the Meteor Store in the near future. That stuff's not there yet, but the fish eating yep. fish eating fish eating fish, it's up. You can buy it now. <laughs> yeah, and if you can't find it, just you just search fish eating fish eating fish in Google. 
Uh, maybe plus, Russian plus nesting hope. doll fish. I don't <laughs> yeah. know. You might find it that way. Lord knows <laughs> what else you'll find if you search that. Um, but anyway, you know, no, the, the degenerate angler stuff is in the works. But in the meantime, uh, be the first person at the ramp rocking that killer pseudo graphic. I dare you. Uh, and until we have some degenerate angler gear in the store, of course, you can still snag free stickers from us by either using those degenerate angler and bent podcast hashtags or getting a shout-out on this show. Speaking of which, I have a few very quick shout-outs before we move on here. Uh, first one goes out to Dan Jones, who uh, wrote in to just say, we missed some low-hanging fruit in that mean-mouth bass story. And he's like, why wouldn't why wouldn't that just be called a medium-mouth bass? Which I thought was was brilliant. He nailed it. That was a good one. That was so, that was like perfect dad humor for both yeah, of us. Yeah, exactly. Sticker, sticker pack for Dan. Um, and then Mitch McGee, he DM'd me. And he says, question for you and Miles. How do I show and tell people that I love to fish in a way that the Bent Podcast wouldn't make fun of? Examples of things <laughs> to make fun of. Salt Life stickers, any fishing brand sticker on my truck, driving a Subaru, rod bolts, exclusively wearing salty crew merch. I love fishing and I want to share my interests with others, but I also don't want to be a D-bag about it. Dude, possibly one of my favorite questions um, you might you well now you're going to have bent stickers so those are approved that'll you help put the, you could put those in your truck you might want to pick up a um fish eating fish eating fish t-shirt <laughs> that's approved of course my real my real answer to mitch was just like dude don't listen to us who are we what do we know you be you yeah okay you want to drive a subaru with stuff. a rod vault on it just go for go it. right ahead um and final one i got a, i got a quick note from uh james miles and his daughter, Norin, just turned five, and she's apparently a big fan of the show and asked if I would give her a birthday shout-out. He says she's mainly into the music, also some of the stories. Most of them are over her head, and she's really into the sound bites that Phil adds. She's a big Phil fan. So there are you we go. All? Happy birthday yeah. to Norin. Speaking of Phil, Phil is the guy who gets to judge our news stories when this is all over. Remember, this is a competition. Miles and I do not know which news stories the other guy is bringing to the table. It's always an advantage to be the lead-off. And that is you this week, sir. What do you got? Yeah. And this week especially was a, a big advantage for the leadoff. I think we both know this. Yeah, because I know I, I what you, you got. I think you assumed what I was going to lead with, <laughs> even though we haven't we haven't discussed it. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna lead with the elephant, or rather the whale, in the fish newsroom this week. <sighs> That's why I didn't do it because I wasn't I know, the leadoff. I know. And we I know. have been inundated. So many people. <laughs> I, I think half the people who listen to this show have already sent the story, but for the other half. Yeah. Here's the biggest watery, fishy story of the week. Michael Packard, a 56-year-old commercial lobster diver from Massachusetts, was diving in 45 feet of water off the coast of Provincetown last week when he felt, quote, this huge bump, and then everything went dark. Mm -hmm. And everything went dark because Packard was inside the mouth of a humpback whale. Now, if you're at the bottom of the ocean and you feel an immense force crash into you, and then everything goes dark, what would you assume had happened? Um, I, I don't know. Maybe I was I, swallowed by a shark. Isn't that, I, don't, I don't know. I got hit by a boat or a submarine. I don't See, know. I, would, I, I would assume I got munched by a shark. Like that would be whether yeah. I, I don't like something slams into me at the bottom and and things go black. I think I just got chewed by a shark and I'm dead. That's what maybe, I think. Maybe maybe like the average person would think that, but because I'm a shark guy and also large, like it would take a full on megalodon to just like make me disappear <laughs> in one bite. So even a great white, like so I see what you're saying, but 
I don't know. I wouldn't have thought that. Well, maybe you're just <laughs> more of a shark expert than the rest of us. But but I that's know what, what I would have thought, thought if this and <laughs> and Packard would agree with me. He thought he got hit by a shark, but then he told WBZ TV, "quote Then I felt around, and I realized there was no teeth, and then I had felt really no great pain, and then I realized, oh my god, I'm in a whale's mouth." I'm in a whale's mouth, it's, it's and he's cozy, trying to it's swallow cozy me. And chill in here. This is really nice. <laughs> now, for the record, the whale was almost certainly not trying to swallow him, but we'll, no. we'll cover that in a minute. Yep. Packard Packard wrote on Facebook that he thinks he was inside the whale's mouth for thirty to forty seconds before the whale rose to the surface and spit him out. Now, this sounds insane. The whole story, I mean, to me, seems utterly implausible. Whales don't eat people. Whales are pretty aware of what's going on around them. The idea that a whale would just like gobble up a scuba diver is frankly ludicrous. But this story has witnesses. Commercial divers work in pairs. Uh, like with a, there, there's a diver and then there's a crewman that stays on the boat topside and, and tracks the diver's bubbles so he can help yeah. out if something goes wrong. Yeah. Packard's crewman, a guy named Josiah Mayo, was doing just that. And then all of a sudden, a whale breached right in front of him and spit out his coworker. And that's got to be crazy. <laughs> A charter boat captain named Joe Francis was working in the area and also witnessed the incident before rushing over to help. He told WBZ TV, quote, I saw Mike come flying out of the water feet first with his flippers on and land back in the water. I jumped aboard the boat. We got him up, got his tank off, got him on the deck and calmed him down. And he goes, Joe, I was in the mouth of a whale. <laughs> Packard was immediately rushed to Cape Cod Hospital where he was treated for soft tissue damage before limping out on his own power later that day, knowing, as we all do, that whales don't eat people, mm. what the hell happened? Ian Kerr, executive director of the group Ocean Alliance, explained that humpback whales employ a strategy called lunge feeding, mm -hmm. in which they identify a school of fish, accelerate quickly, open their mouths, and, quote, take in 10 SUVs worth of water and fish, and then everything else. Though... As we said, humpbacks are usually pretty aware of their surroundings. It appears that this may have been a juvenile or sub-adult whale, like a teenager. Mm -hmm. And if whale teens are anything like human teens, their feeding behaviors may be somewhat more reckless and indiscriminate <laughs> than their elders. Either way, researchers think that this is like a one-in-a-million accident where the diver just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and the whale just got him by mistake. Humpbacks have very small esophagi, which is good for this guy. Because there's no way the whale could have swallowed Packard, <laughs> even if it wanted to. They do, however, have very powerful mouths and jaws. So the whale could have easily crushed the diver, likely breaking his neck and her back. But that's not what it did. Instead, it like it sucked him up and went, oh, shit, this isn't what I meant to have. I don't want this. <laughs> and then it like, rushed to the surface where it shook its head and then potentially used its tongue to eject Packard skyward. That's the theory. Now, in several of the stories I read, people would come up with some kind of analogy for how the whale was trying to get rid of and react to this foreign object in its mouth. Like one compared it to a biker getting a bug in their mouth, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's not the analogy that I thought of. Like when I heard the story, an analogy popped in my head, but it wasn't that. I thought of a fish with a plug in its mouth coming to the surface and yeah. trying to shake it loose. Like that's the image that I have in my head, but in a much larger scale and with a person, not a plug. And I'm not sure if there's any useful insight to be gleaned here, but I think Packard's the only person I can think of who's like 
been the lure that the fish was trying to throw. You know what I mean? Like he's been the lure. Other people and, have come close, but this yeah. is the only one I know of where he ended up in there fully enclosed. I, I have no clue if that experience like endows him with useful wisdom that we anglers can use. I don't know, but I, I'd like to think, right. I'd like to think that he's like, guys, I've been the bait. And here's <laughs> what I know now. Like, I don't, I, he didn't do that. He didn't give that interview. That, that, that's what I hope. Last point on this. This dude seems to be one of those people to whom crazy shit just happens and he survives. 20 years ago, he was in a plane crash in the Costa Rican jungle in which he sustained massive facial lacerations and multiple broken bones in his arms and legs. He survived for two days in the jungle before being rescued and the doctor said he would not have made it through another night. So this dude sounds like the kind of guy they would make a movie about. And mm-hmm. he actually told the New York Post that if they do make a film about his life, he'd like to be played by Matt Damon. Well, yeah, okay. So yeah, we had we had to touch on that one. A few a few thoughts. Like I see humpbacks a fair amount off Jersey during the striper season because they come right in on the bunker schools and that yep. that that feeding style. It's no joke, man. And people oh, have. Yeah hooked them by mistake because they'll hook a striper in the bunker and they're fighting it and whale just come up and take the whole school one shot <laughs> just like like a metric ton one shot and if 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 your your fish is in the middle of it it's going down too and like i said i don't know of anybody who's been fully engulfed but man i know plenty of kayakers who've had some scares i've had some scares on larger boats i mean it's like a very imposing thing oh yeah when they come up straight vertical like that and like there's there's no stopping them but it, it, I'm not surprised, uh, you know, I wasn't surprised when I read that it was a juvenile because most sort of whale follies and foibles, that's the case. Like, they breach all the time, and it's like, you're breaching in a fleet of boats. How are you not hitting them? But the big ones, like, they, they understand their spatial deal. It happens every once in a while. One will come down and clip somebody's bow, and it's always a juvenile. So, like, they're still, they're still learning. You know what I mean? When 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 you were a teenager, did you bump your head on shit constantly? Because I know I did. So it makes perfect sense to me. My spatial no, awareness I, didn't actually solidify until <laughs> I was like 20. I didn't bump my head, but I would like, you know, be in reverse when I thought I was in drive, like go over parking cones, <laughs> like jump over the concrete parking. I did. I almost hit a lady at the Best Buy like the first week I had my license. It's, you know... We don't need to get off on that. I'm, a, I'm an excellent driver now, but uh, I feel I feel for the juvenile whales. Um, also, yeah. you know, I was thinking about it. I, I I poked fun at at the shark thing, knowing that like, oh, I wouldn't think it was a shark. But dude, great whites, Cape Cod, hand and glove. Like there's totally. there's great whites all over up there. So now that I think yep. about it, considering where he was in the world, yeah, like they like they track them up there all the time. So I'm gl- I'm glad that worked out. What a story. What an American. No doubt. What a tough man. <laughs> like if he could survive in the jungle after a plane crash, this was like no big deal. 30 seconds yeah, in a whale. Whatever. Not, I got not a this. problem. I'm, I'm walking home tonight and going to yeah. Chili's. Um I no no good transition whatsoever. I've been trying to think of it. I don't have it. We've been I feel like we've been sucking on transitions in general lately and sort of copping out and just being I like, think you have. I'm I still d- working it. <laughs> Okay. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> Don't so, lump fa- me in with your failures. You know, I, the only thing I got, which is totally lame, is like we had a feud between whale and man. Here's another odd feud. Phil, feel free to cut that because that was shit. Uh, or don't. Whatever. Anyway, weird feud I found documented on uh, Syracuse.com. And according to this story, um, and I actually did know this, 
New York's Seneca River is hailed as one of the premier carp destinations in America. It's so good, in fact, that the World Carp Championships are scheduled to be held on its shores in 2023. But there could be a monkey wrench that stops that from happening, and that monkey wrench is named Tony Crawford. Okay? Mm. So Tony Crawford. Tony. 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 Big Tone. He works for Midway Lakes in uh, King Mountain, North Carolina, which is a series of pay lakes. And apparently, Tony and crew have been making annual treks to Seneca with tank trucks, catching a mess of those famous trophy carp and hauling them back to King Mountain to stock the pay lakes. No. Yes. Now, according to Ian Sorrell, president of the Carp Anglers Group of North America, he's quoted in the story saying, it's been a dirty secret for a number of years. So Crawford has been doing this for a while. This is not a new thing. Uh, Here's a quote from the story. Paul Russell, one of the co-directors of the Wild Carp Classic and a carp fishing guide, said the Seneca has been recognized internationally as a premier carp destination. He said anglers participating in recent years in the Classic have noted a decrease in the fishing quality on the Seneca. Some have decided not to come to the Classic as a result. During the recent Classic held this past May, Russell said... Only 31 of more than 50 teams caught enough big fish, meaning 15 pounds or greater, to qualify for the Big Ten category, which considers the total weight of a team's biggest 10 fish and has the biggest cash payout. The bigger issue, apart from whether Crawford's actions are affecting the quality of tournament carp fishing in the river, is whether the practice could result in unintended spread of disease and invasive aquatic species from one state's waterway to another. So, I certainly understand the frustration of the recreational carp fishing community here. Um, and I, yeah. I guess they've kind of, they've had enough and they've enlisted the help of New York Assemblyman Will Barkley, who the story says is drafting legislation to get the activity under State Department of Environmental Conservation control. But the thing is, this is not a cut and dry fight because Crawford is doing absolutely nothing illegal whatsoever. Wildlife officials from both New York and North Carolina are like, yeah, sorry, kind of don't care. Carp are not game fish. There are no right. laws saying they can't be brought across state lines. And if they're being stocked in a privately owned body of water, it's perfectly fine. There are no rules or regulations in either state governing this. So what the story doesn't tell us is exactly how many fish or pounds of fish Crawford and company uh, are taking. And I also question, just to sort of play devil's advocate, if this one dude and his carp henchmen are really that responsible for a downturn in carp numbers because there's no mention of bow fishing in this article. But in in my experience, I think you've seen the same thing where there are a lot of common carp, there are bow fishermen. And just, again, a quick Google search turned up plenty of uh, hits for bow fishing on the Seneca. Um, All that said, having hung out with really, really devoted carp guys like the Euro guys, like, I feel the pain here. Like, you already are always worrying about bow fishing and how that's going to affect, you know, the thing that you love to do. And then you have this guy. Um, but, I mean, it really just all ties back to the fact that I just don't think carp will ever achieve the status they have in Europe. Like, it will just never happen here. Like, it's like you're screaming at a wall if you're trying to do right by common carp. And final thought, while I can't I can't fully blast Crawford, I will say, like, man, there's a, there's a ton of miles between between Kings Mountain, North Carolina, and the Seneca River. Like, you mean to tell me you can't find carp in that span that, like, fewer, if any, people care about? Like, if you would come and take them all for your pay lake? That seems odd to me to make that journey. 
But um uh, thought that was yeah. interesting because it's a it's a very like I, I get it, it's a nasty fight, but I don't know who's winning that, if anybody. No. I would highly doubt that it's this guy's carp toting operation that's actually I feel having the same significant way. impact on the he, population. He's, I, he's think, easy I think to you're, like you're single spot out. on. I think yeah. you're spot on with with it's you know more likely bow fishing or something else, but probably bow fishing. Um and which again also perfectly legal. Uh, and, and I'm not calling that out as, as something negative, but if the, if the, if the carp folks are looking for a reason why their numbers are going down so precipitously, I don't think you can just single out this one dude who's grabbing fish as your scapegoat. Yeah. That said, I, I think what he's doing is kind of shady. Yeah. I mean, and it's I'm not, not it's a not, proponent it's not of cool, it. Cool. But I mean, I'm, I'm not either. But again, you're looking at this small group of people who really, like, dude, it's so hard to be a devout carp guy in this country because, like, everyone is against you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, no matter how much you try and pre- it's similar to snakeheads. No matter how much you preach, you know, the the benefits and the fun, it's the average dude is against you. So, I mean, I think it's 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 shady too, and I think it's kind of wrong. And again, I think he could probably find carp for the pay lake a lot closer. But, um. You know, to the average guy, it's still carp. You know, it's just it's just some carp, man. I was trying to figure out why this bothered me so much, and I think I've just put my finger on it. They may be, whatever, just carp. I like carp, you like carp, so we don't feel that way. And they may not be a game fish as designated by management agencies, but they're still a public resource. Yeah. Those are fish that come from a public lake that are feeding upon all the things in that lake that are available to the public that are being taken out of that public trust and privatized. And that yep. pisses me off. Like yep. the, 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 just the, the philosophical implications of that piss me off. That to me is the antithesis of the model that we have for wildlife management and fisheries. And so that just doesn't work for me. That just, that makes me angry. Well, I hope, I hope there's, there's some kind of happy medium or some kind of turn of events here because I don't know. I, I'm not in the carp scene, but if they're really thinking of having the world championship on American soil, I mean, you got to have a pretty damn good carp yeah. fishery to attract people from across the globe to here. Um, so that's that's pretty impressive in and of itself. You know, it is. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, 
take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I think the the connection that I have between this and my second story is is that it fits both of these touch on fishing tournaments that people don't know that much about mm-hmm. and maybe attract a local interest that that the rest of the country might never have heard about but are a big deal in their their little areas. Yep. So I gotta say this next story, I I came away from it scratching my head a little bit. We're gonna come out of this with with some some questions more than answers. All right, so everyone we talk to in the fishing and tackle industry right now, every everybody that we we have a conversation with is all about how popular fishing is, mm-hmm, how mm-hmm. how much money they were making, how crowded the lakes and rivers are, how difficult it is to keep tackle in stock, how busy yep. the guides are, right? Yep. That is the hottest conversation in the fishing industry right now. But one particular shop just doesn't seem to think it's popular enough. Like they feel they feel the need to create this extra huge incentive to get people out fishing. Enter the story of Old Walter 2.0. Last <laughs> weekend was free fishing weekend in Tennessee, meaning that anyone could fish without needing to purchase a license. To capitalize on what was already sure to be a busy couple days on the water on the famed South Holston Reservoir, Watson's Marine and Tackle in Bluff City, Tennessee, decided to up the ante. On June 10th, at around 1 a.m., Watson employees caught, tagged, and released a three-and-a-half-pound smallmouth that they named Old Walter 2.0. They then announced on their Facebook page that anyone who caught the fish legally and delivered it to the shop alive would win $100,000. Winners were required to follow all fishing game laws and catch the fish on a rod and reel, but live bait and artificial lures were both legal. According to Watson Marine, quote, 
This entire event was inspired by a similar contest in the mid-1980s that many still look fondly back on in the great memories from the event, and hopefully that same sentiment was relayed this past weekend. That's why the fish is called Old Walter 2.0. And that all sounds kind of heartwarming. But I read a bunch of stories about this, and no one actually seems to remember the details of that original contest from 40 years ago or even <laughs> the exact year that it happened. So either people don't want to talk about the details with the press because it was sketchy or not sanctioned or something. I don't know. Or they really don't remember what happened. So I, I, I don't quite get how this is an extension of history being relived. But either way, this year's Old Walter event will be much better cataloged in history, what was already a crazy weekend on a popular reservoir turned into a complete madhouse. Anglers flocked not just from all over Tennessee, but from neighboring states and even further afield. Local local news station 5 reported talking to a group who came from Michigan for a crack at the 100 Grand Smalley. Public access points were just like choked with bank anglers, and, and the boat ramps were exactly what you would imagine, just like hellish nightmare scenes. The good news is that I couldn't find any reports of, of disasters or incidents or injuries yeah. or drownings or, or fistfights or anything. But the bad news, despite the thousands of hooks and lines combing South Holston for two days straight, no one caught old Walter. He's still out there, just chilling, sitting there. In a final update to their Facebook page on Monday morning, Watson's Marine announced that old Walter still carries a prize on his head but now it's 1500 bucks instead of 100 grand. Oh, so it had to be caught over that weekend. Had to be caught over the weekend. Man, ah, man, ah, I don't want to I don't want to like I don't want to speculate, but doesn't this all sound real shady? Like there's like some element of shade to this. Yeah, of course. They are insistent. If you look at everything they put up publicly, like this is a real thing. And after it was over, they put up pictures of the fish they're calling old Walter and them releasing it. Say it's real. Here it is. But I think you're exactly right. All of it smacks as a little shady to me from the, like some sort of origin to a contest from the eighties that no one really knows anything about to like, there's a hundred grand. We swear the fish is out there. Like, I don't know, man. And and I don't know. And and again, I I, I don't know anything about this Marina, but I'm just thinking of like the local marinas on some of the bigger lakes around here. If they offered up a hundred thousand dollars, I'd be like, you haven't made a hundred thousand dollars in that little Marina and that place. Like in the last, like, it just seems like one of those things where it's like, we're going to, we're going to do it to hype it up, but like they somehow know they're not going to have to pay it out or something. Yeah. I, I mean, I try to think the best up. of people, but yeah, yeah, it feels sketchy to me too. I think it's also possible. I'll say this. We don't know how busy they are. That's a very popular part of the fishing country. Like fishing is a big deal over there, particularly bass fishing. And yeah. if they sell a lot of big bass boats and last year was probably well, a banner true. year for them. They, that's they very that's well could have a hundred grand to, See, to I, use I, on I'm, a promo. I'm, I'm thinking of it as like a small mom and pop place, but that might not be the case. Even still, it's like, why not just leave it $100,000 till it's caught if you have the $100,000? Because they got what they wanted. They got a weekend of like craziness and people spending money. They, that, now it's diminishing returns for them. Well, you know what the problem here is? I've heard there's a Senko shortage. So all those people, <laughs> probably ain't, none of them had a four-inch root beer Senko. <laughs> and, and there you go. 
and that's what happens. Well, um, we'll monitor to see if old Walter. Walter, isn't that like a There's no D. It's not old Walter. It's old Walter. Old Walter. There's no D. There's no D there. The D is is silent. Um, Yeah. Well, we'll we'll see what happens. I I would like to follow up to see if somebody actually catches it just to prove that it's out there. I just want to know. Yeah. I just want to know. But, uh, okay, so I'll transition to to, uh, proving there. Here's some – this is some real proof about muskies. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to set up this transition. This is proof, proof about muskies you didn't know. Pro- data that proves things about muskies, shit, that you probably didn't know before. How's that? Was that smooth? I thought it was great. I'm moving on. Smooth as sandpaper. <laughs> Straight out of Michigan, uh, let's talk about a muskie named James. This is from MLive.com. Your source for James the Muskie plush toys, onesies, and lunchboxes. Just kidding about those, but not... But not about the muskie, uh, which the Michigan DNR named James because his tag number was 007, as in Oh, good one. So, old James was first tagged in the Detroit <laughs> River. Is it old, old James? We got old, old Walter, James. and I'm saying old James. <laughs> was first tagged in the Detroit River in the late spring of 2016, right? And by the end of that summer found his way clear across Lake Erie to Buffalo, New York. Wow. By January 2017, James was back in the Michigan waters of Lake Erie, and in May 2017, he was only a few hundred yards from where he had been captured the year before. So that is a a round trip for James of 620 miles. And according to the story... Uh, James is still tagged, and they monitor this through through sonar. Um, James has repeated this same pattern, this same movement in following years, and is still providing scientists with data on these movements. How many times have they seen him this, repeat this? This, this story, the story did not say, did not give an amount of, of specific times it was repeated. It just said this was the first pass, and he's made similar or passes just as close in subsequent years. Huh. All the way out and all the way back, right? So here's a quote yep. from the story. Tagging and tracking of muskies is ongoing with researchers hoping to use fish movement patterns to identify unique groups of fish, which, according to the DNR, can inform overall estimates of population side and provide pivotal information to fisheries managers. Each fish is surgically implanted with an acoustic transmitter that emits coded pings unique to each fish and has a battery life of at least seven years. Um, and it says these signals can be detected by a network of listening stations throughout the Great Lakes as part of the Great Lakes acoustic telemetry observation system, which I happen to know, while the story didn't go into it, they have these things planted all over the lake. They monitor all kinds of stuff. Like they yeah. know yeah, like, yeah. where all the walleyes are right now and where, <laughs> all, but I didn't know that they were doing this with muskies. Like I know that they've done a lot with salmon and, and I know they've done a ton with walleye. And there's there's really no like huge follow up behind that other than like I, I just always find these little tidbits fascinating because I think with freshwater species in particular, um, so many people just kind of consider them homebodies, and that's not at all true. Like in so many cases, no. if fish have room to roam, a lot of them will for a multitude of reasons. And this takes me back to that story you covered. This was a while ago, but it was about the the uh, the near record muskie in a Minnesota lake that wasn't supposed to have muskies yeah. in it. Yep. Mm-hmm. There's this big mystery, and all they could figure was there was this long network of these small, like, culverts and ditches that ran underneath roads 
um, that distantly connected to musky waters. And there, it's like, hey, you know, it's sort of speculation. Like, well, that's the only way he could have got there. It must have taken him years to do it. Um, but sometimes the lengths they'll go are hard to comprehend without data like this. And this is like right in front of your face. Like they tracked this muskie 620 miles multiple times. Um, and they, they've done a bit of this kind of thing, even on like salty stripers out here always blows my mind too. Um, the, one of them spent, I remember this a couple years ago, spent a ton of time in the summer, 70 miles offshore in the canyons where the tuna and the marlin are. Mm. Right. And it's like, by the book, that fish should never be there. But like, there it was. Science says so, right in your face. So I'm always fascinated by studies like this that just show you like how far and wide fish will roam. So do, and maybe it's probably not in there because you would have covered it, but I'm just curious. Are there any hypotheses as to why that fish was making that trip? Because usually they're going to be following bait or following cooler water or following something that is attractive to them. Exactly. And no, it, it didn't, but I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go out on a limb here and say that if you base it around walleye movements, I know a little bit more about that. Like if you talk to guys like Ross Robertson, uh like real ringers in that system, mm-hmm. like they they follow emerald shiners, they follow, like you said, cooler temps. And while there's always like a little bit of walleye everywhere, as I understand it, like the main bulk, the main population they slide from one side of that lake and back again for following everything from temp to food. So Mm -hmm. I would assume that the muskie's moving for the same reason. And I actually, as I recall it, like the the eastern side of that basin, I think has the cooler water in the summer. Like late summer, you want to be on the eastern side of that basin. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure even if it's, I don't know whether the muskies are migrating per se, but like if you're a muskie and you're hungry, you can follow a bunch of small walleyes around, right? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And, so I'm sure it's all interconnected. On. Yeah. Or what? Yeah. So I'm sure it's all interconnected to just these general migrations throughout the system. And as a salty guy, that's so common, like how, totally. how fish migrate and move. But I mean, that may as well be the ocean. There's so much water and so much space. So it's not like, well, Cleveland's walleyes are here and they're always here. Like those fish, it's almost like a saltwater environment, the way they they migrate through that system. Which is why those those Great Lakes, like hardcore musky guys are so dialed on on localized bites at certain yep. times of the year, right? Like you hear about that all the time. Yep. And and where what you know, whether they're they're in the Fox River or Green Bay or just for one period yeah. of time when when the conditions are right. And it's just like saltwater. You gotta follow them where they go as they move. It's it's all it's all it's all the fish. I've done it with smallmouths up there, and like it's super secret deal. I'm not supposed to talk about, but be that as it may, it's like we fish this area where you would have a hell of a time ever catching a smallmouth, except for like these two weeks in November, and they're mm. on these Volkswagen sized pieces of rubble in basically a shallow desert. And they're not there. Like, you won't catch a smallmouth there any other time of year. And there's a lot of that in the Great Lakes. And it always fascinates me how salty it feels. Like, you yeah, gotta be, totally. Like, it's right here, right now. So, James the Muskie, 620 miles. Good on him. I'm sure he's strong. He oh, might, yeah. you, you know, yeah. you might want to let him fight Muskie guys <laughs> instead of just ripping him to the net in two seconds while he rolls around. Let him have a little drag. Uh, let him run. Maybe, okay? maybe he's got, maybe shul- him, he's got shoulders. Don't bring him in green. Could go bad. <laughs> Anyway, so Phil's got a lot to choose from. Uh, who's going to take the win? Guy uh, getting eaten by by whale. Old Walter. Carp feud of the century. James the Muskie. Uh, we'll All see what Phil stuff. has to say. And then uh, we're going to do a little freaking Philistines right after that. 
Okay, so you're you're telling me a hundred thousand dollars if I make him the winner? <laughs> you got a deal, man. Okay, bye. Uh, because he did such a good job this week, and for no other reason, Miles Nolte, you're the winner of Fish News this week. No, oh, hold on one second. Hello? What? 15 on? Okay, deal's off. Uh, I, I actually, I just recounted the points, and um, it turns out that that Miles was actually uh, taking truckloads of Fish News points from Joe's beautiful public lakes and trucking them all the way to his stuffy private lakes. And uh, listen, not technically illegal, but not in the spirit of Fish News, and therefore I have to make Joe Sir Melly the winner of Fish News this week. What's a Faustin? It's a guy who doesn't care about books or interesting films and things. Then I'm Faustin. Robert Rurik is best known as a hunting writer. His account of a 1951 African safari, Horn of the Hunter, is still regarded by many as the greatest African hunting book ever written. Others, myself included, contend that its somewhat egregious derivation of Hemingway's Green Hills of Africa dulls the shine. Regardless of what I think, however, Rurik rose to prominence and fame when Horn of the Hunter was published in 1953 and remained there until he died of cirrhosis of the liver in 1965. Style and topic weren't the only attributes Rurik shared with, or perhaps borrowed from, his favorite writer and personal hero. In my estimation, Rurik's most compelling, original, and enduring work is collected from a series that ran in Field and Stream from 1953 to 1961 titled The Old Man and the Boy. The stories are written from the perspective of a grown man, recounting the fishing, hunting, and practical education he received from his grandfather while growing up on the rural coast of North Carolina in the 1920s. The series is technically fiction, but clearly based on Rurik's own upbringing. He recounts his childhood through a romantic prism that throws rainbows across nearly every character and event. Even when the stories hint at darkness or ugliness, those smudges get covered by colorful sentiment. Grown men getting blind drunk and falling into inane fisticuffs after a failed raccoon hunt over nothing beyond ego and idiocy, are recalled in a charming and tender anecdote. When one of them misses a punch badly, falls off the porch, and remains supine, his fellow combatant and brother decides to join him. They sleep off their alcohol and fury, curled together in the dirt, and, looking so peaceful, are joined by one of the hounds who stretches out across their feet. But in this book, Rurik's rosy reflections feel more perspectival than deceitful. Adults often see their own backstories through the funhouse mirror of nostalgia. When we remember our pasts, and especially our childhoods, we almost always find that time works on memory in much the same way that water does on stones. Rurik portrays early 20th century North Carolina as a fantasy world for a boy who liked fishing, hunting, and being outside. In each vignette, he recalls some kind of wonderful adventure, chasing quail or bluefish, where the boy is ushered toward some deep wisdom through the folksy backwoods brilliance of his grandfather, the old man. The lessons are always practical. Steward your fishing game. Bring spare tackle. Don't start drinking until after you're done hunting. Sometimes they're moral. Train a dog. Don't break him. Idleness is only a sin if you squander it. One can be kind 
without being weak. Often, they're philosophical. The person who speaks the most and loudest usually knows the least, or to quote the old man himself, the world is full of fine, fragmentary thoughts killed at birth by the interruptions of damned fools. Mostly, the old man teaches the boy to slow down, shut up, and pay attention to the world around him, especially the non-human life. And while the stories consistently flirt with that shadow line where poignant becomes trite, they never seem to cross it. The old man is wise and brilliant, but also self-deprecating and just flawed enough to feel like the grandfather you wish you had. Being that this book is set in the South in the 1920s, it reflects flawed and ignorant cultural attitudes about race and gender. To consume this book entirely, without critical thought, would run counter to one of the central philosophies that the old man espouses. People are often dead wrong in their opinions about and ways of treating other people whom they do not know. We can always do better by ourselves, our world, and our species by actually listening to and internalizing experiences that are not our own. Though shot through with relic darts of racism and chauvinism, I feel relatively confident that if Rurik's characters were alive today, some of their assumptions would change. And I think anyone reading this book in the 21st century would be wise to maintain the skepticism of dogma and questioning of others' opinions that the old man so often recommends to the boy. Here's a taste of the style and pacing that should convince you why this book is a perfect summertime read. We came around a bend of the big creek and the old man told me to head her into the bank where there were a lot of lily pads and weeds and it looked like some fairly deep pools. Now then, son, the old man said, we ain't going to talk any because fishing is a silent sport and a lot of conversation scares the fish and wrecks the mood. What I want you to do is sit there and fish. And when the fish ain't biting, I want you to listen and look and think. Think about heaven and hell and just how long is hereafter. Look around you and don't take nothing for granted. Look at everything you see and listen to everything you hear, just like you were brand new come from another world. And think about all those things and how they got there. Now, let's fish. Well, sir, when you can't talk, you got to think and look and listen. And all of a sudden, I was the lonesomest boy in the world. You know anything about what it's like to be in a freshwater swamp in the south when the sun is starting to drop and the noises begin? Or what it smells like and feels like as it cools off from the heat of the day? And what sort of things are all around you? I got to looking at the water. It was clear and clean, but brown as your hat from the leaf dye. And when you scooped it up, a handful tasted a little like the leaves smelled if you crumpled them up in your hand. And it was full of all sorts of little things. Bugs that hopped and popped. Little crawlers that left a tiny wake behind them, like a mink swimming. Fish swirled and rose to snap at the beginnings of the flyhatch. A big bullfrog gave a loud croaking, kerthunk, and leapt into the water with a splash. Over on the other bank, a water moccasin slithered down the greasy earth and slipped into the water without a sound. It was so lonely in that swampy river that it made you want to cry. All the sad sounds in the world suddenly started. A dove set up that woeful hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo across the swamp, and another one, sadder still, began answering back. They sounded like two old widow women swapping miseries. In the utter hush, a million noises intruded. A bittern roared. A heron squawked. A kingfisher rattled 
A deer snorted and barked. A bird screeched. A crow cawed. Somewhere deep in the swamp there was a growl and a scream as a wildcat skittled a rabbit. A squirrel churred and was answered. Leaves rustled. Things fell off trees. Bushes stirred mysteriously with the passing of unseen animals. In my brain I looked at all of it. The trees, the grass, the moss, the bugs, the birds, the ferns, the flowers, the setting sun, the rising hatch of flies. I felt the dark creeping and saw the first shining speck of star and heard the mounting noises in the swamp. I felt cold in my bones from the rising miasma of mist as the air cooled. I was so lost in what was going on in the million slivers of vibrant life that when a big fish hit, I lost him out of sheer panic. I'll tell you what, man, after all these years, what's still difficult for me to to fully appreciate and understand is that my byline appeared for for so many years in the same magazine where those stories came from. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. Powerful. A lot lot of history there, man. A lot of it. And like when we met, right? When you when we met, you were the fishing editor at Field and Stream. Mm-hmm. I was the fishing editor at Gray's Sporting Journal. And I think sometimes, at least at first, we both felt like we were we were wearing clown shoes, right? Oh, totally. Because I'm I'm not a hundred percent of this, but if I'm not mistaken, I think we were both the youngest people to ever hold that title mm-hmm. of those magazines. Pretty sure, yeah. And yeah. And by the time you were there, right, Rurik was long dead. He was long gone. But we still got to share mastheads with some of our idols, right? Like yeah. Tom Tom McGuane, AJ mm-hmm. McLean, David James Duncan, Pete Fromm, Jim Babb. Like Oh yeah. Oh, dude, yeah. I mean, I still think about it now. Like, my stuff for, for years went alongside Eddie Nickens and Phil Borgelli, and I'm still damn proud to have been part of that magazine and just, like, the literary and sporting tradition behind it, you know? Yeah, I mean, dude, while you were there, Harrison was still publishing in Field and Stream. Mm-hmm. I mean, these were, these for, for both of us, I think those were, were kind of magical times. And I'll, I'll never forget the day that I, I was told I got that job. Oh, I, me I blew my mind. It was one of the top <laughs> five happiest days of my life without yeah. question. Me too. Me too. And look at us now. Look look where we've gotten. We get yeah. to make a, a podcast with, with such luminaries as Lance B and Skagit Johnson. Um, you know, plus we get to we get to comb the internet for fishing products worthy uh, of ridicule and derision for our Salbin segment. God, mm. it, it just all paid it all off. Paid for off. Us. Well, why did you put the head in the paper? You don't know what I'm getting at. Well, you you didn't have to be so hurtful with me, so angry. The original idea for this segment was for us to make jokes about used fishing gear that was for sale online. But as we've kind of gone with this, uh, we keep finding or or getting sent links to these just absolutely ludicrous manufacturer products. So <sighs> Joe and I have talked about this, like off, off the, the radio here. We've, we've had conversations and we've decided to officially open up the category a little bit, right? Give ourselves yep. license to make fun of absolutely any worthy fishing related products, even if they're not being pawned off secondhand. Yeah. Because it's, I don't know. It seems like there's too many not to like, we, we have to, we can't, we've already done we can't it a couple times, them. but now we're, we're officially yeah. saying that we're doing it. So right. It's and, official. and to we're be clear, it. we are in no way, shape or form giving up on combing Craigslist and, and Facebook. We're just, we're expanding. Okay. Yeah. We're expanding. We're giving ourselves license to make fun of new shit 
and used shit. Yeah. As I, I, I said, I don't know, not too long ago, I prefer to ridicule a single person over a company, right? To me, it's, yeah. it's like, it's no different than my preference for buying stuff from a small business instead of a large corporation. I actually, <laughs> I actually want to see the impact I'm having, both positive and negative. Um, but look, sometimes you got to expand your horizons. So that's, that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. And, uh, yep. and, and you're helping us with this because, because listener Brandon Rosansky, recently sent us a link to a product being sold by a fishing gear company that I somehow I'd never heard of this before. I don't know how I missed it. Judging <laughs> judging by their website. Really? Yeah, amazing. <laughs> judging by their website, the tackle box shop seems like it might be a money laundering front for the Russian mob. Specializes in Chinese <laughs> knockoff fishing gear, which may or may not have disappeared from a shipping crate. Mm-hmm. According to their website, quote, at the tackle box shop, we stock nearly all accessories, including fishing lures, hooks, jig heads, weight sinkers, line stoppers, barrel swivels, <laughs> free tackle boxes, and overall any and all fishing equipment you need for saltwater and freshwater. Well, I don't get the free tackle box. <laughs> How do you make... stock a free tackle box? Free to them? Because it a fell off sinker? a truck? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, so much. So much with, with a tagline like that and prices like these. You can understand why they just can't afford to hire copy editors fluent in the English language. Yeah. You yeah. can get yourself right now. If you go there, you can purchase for yourself an entire 10 piece set of Meps Aglia knockoffs for $9.99 American. Of course, mm-hmm. they're not, these are not advertised. Like you can't look up Meps knockoffs, it won't come up. No. They're, they're not stupid. That's they're not going to do that. Yeah. No. It, but it's <laughs> like, it is so obvious that these are just, they're painted just to be exactly like Aglia's but they're not. However, the tackle box shop labels them as quote, feather hook sequin sea fishing lures, whatever the hell that is. I don't know what that is. I see that sea fishing all the time pop up on cheap stuff. It's always like lures for sea fishing. Like it's, I don't, I don't it's know. A mess. But How is it? For yeah, the sea? It, it's, uh, it's irrelevant, but as look, as bad as their ripoff gear is, that's that's not the thing that caught our attention because there's plenty of ripoff gear out there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, like like you got to be more creative than knocking off a Meps to get on the bent program, Because <laughs> right? it seems they also specialize in gimmicks that probably never should have seen the light of day. And the one we want to tell you about is called, and I shit you not, right? It's called the eruptive fish hook net. Now you may be wondering, what the hell is an eruptive fish hook net? How does it erupt? Do I use it to net fish hooks that have somehow erupted into the water? Uh, You might be thinking, I need to see a photo of this to understand what we're talking about. So did we. It didn't help us that much. (laughs) Nope. Okay. The problem is that the corresponding photo of the product, it won't won't clear up that many questions. Uh, I'm going to do, I'm going to try here. Okay. Yeah. It's a barrel swivel attached to a thin metal rod that has a copper spring, like one of those sort of like pot belly stove-shaped weird springs, loosely wound around it. And on the other end of the copper spring are neon green beads, and attached to the back end of this contraption appears to be just a wad of tied-up nylon mesh netting. Okay, So it's just, none of it makes any sense, right? You 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 look no. at the name, you don't know what the name is about. You look at the photo, and you're like, I, what is this thing that I'm looking at? So naturally... You move on to the product description, figuring that's going to clear some things up. And, and in this case, it's given in, in three easy-to-follow steps, mm-hmm. which we will mm-hmm. now read for you, so you yes. can be as confused as we are. Step one, insert your favorite and tastiest bait 
into our copper-protected spring bulb. <laughs> and this, this step comes with photos. The, the, the photos <laughs> show absolutely nothing to do with bait. No. They're just more no. pictures of this strange product, but this time the, the, the mesh net is untangled and just it's hanging, and, and there's some trees in the background for ambiance, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so here's step two. Okay, we'll get there together somewhere. <laughs> We're going to end up somewhere. Step two, wait patiently for a shoal of fish to appear. <laughs> that's the step. That's the step. Uh, in the, that's the step. Wait patiently for a shoal of fish, not a school, a shoal. A shoal. Um, and in this photo, the eruptive fish hook net hangs in front of a solid black background, and there's 10 little tiny Atlantic salmon photoshopped around it. <laughs> Right? And they're just like staring blankly at the dropping net as though they too are wondering what in the hell this thing is and why it's here, how it's gotten into their environment. Okay. Maybe. Very maybe, confused. Maybe salmon. step three will bring it all together for us. Possibly. So, possibly step, not. Step three pull up on your rod to release the safety bead and release the large net to tangle fish. And the, the photo here just shows a close up of a person sitting in a lawn chair holding a spinning rod which does nothing to mm-hmm. alleviate my skepticism about this whole thing or my confusion as to what exactly a safety bead is and what it has to do with fishing. Okay, so I I, I, I feel like I've somewhat deciphered this, though. Okay, so from what we can piece together, this is kind of like a cast net designed to be used with a rod and reel. But that wouldn't actually work. No. Because if you understand cast nets, they have lead weights all around the perimeter so that when you throw one over a, a shoal of fish, um, <laughs> the weights sink very quickly to the bottom and the fish get trapped underneath the net, okay? Then when you you pull back on the line, it cinches the perimeter of that net closed so the fish can't escape. Now, this item, I don't know, it, it doesn't seem like it would have any such functionality. No, it and doesn't I do can't any really of those tell, things. But, but I, I think the idea, right, This is this is what I gather, is that you would dangle this like you straight off a dock or a boat? Because I don't think you could cast it. It wouldn't go anywhere. It weighs it weighs zero. Uh, so yeah, it's got a, it's got the copper spring. Well, the- it's got the copper spring, and once you fill that up with oatmeal or whatever, <laughs> then you can send it flying. Right? Then you could heave it a mile. Uh, but I think what you would do is you would you would dangle this vertically off off a dock or a boat, and then when a shoal of fish swims over to nibble the bits of chum coming out of the copper plate chum capacitor, like you snap the rod, the net opens and falls down around them. Oh. But without any weights around the perimeter of the net, I don't see how that's possible. No. Or like, what would you do? You'd have to like lower the rod around them. Like if you have only so much line out, do you open the bale and let it fall? I, right? But that wouldn't even work either because then the, the that wouldn't work because the copper weight would go down and the, it would open. It would make the net open, not close. I, I know, but just again, like that's like the best thing I can I can figure. Yeah. yeah. Right? But really at best, I, I, I guess you might have one or two, you know, members of the bluegill shoal just tangled up in the massive ball of nylon mesh shit. Yeah, that's the best <laughs> that, you can I can hope see for. that. I can see so that. You get happening. a couple spines in there. Yeah. You catch them. You use it once because you'll never untangle it again, and you throw it in the trash. <laughs> that's what you do. Anyway, according to the website, this heralds an this is a quote upgraded version of fishing. Change traditional fishing methods. Remove hooks and improve safety. <laughs> <laughs> Just hanging on the fishing rod, you can realize safe fishing. This is that's a real sentence they wrote. <laughs> You can catch big fish without a hook. 
I'm sold. I mean, I, I, I was I, confused and, and lost up until then, but that last, that, that I, last strong I, I statement of positivity just, because I mean, we all want to realize safe fishing. We all want to realize and safe that's fishing. That's basically what and this whole podcast is by about, just, is realizing safe fishing. By just hanging on the fishing rod. It's, just, it's That's perfect. all you got to do. Just hang on it. You'll and be safe. You you didn't mention the best part because somehow the price just dropped from $79.99 to $24.99. That's right. It's what a, a steal. What a steal. Grab what it. What a steal. Hurry up. Hurry up and get them. Um, I assume they're actually already flooded with orders, but after this airs, they'll they'll sell out in, in minutes. Gone. It's, it's, it's the next Tickle Me Elmo. Um, so act <laughs> now, everyone. Thanks again to Brandon Rosansky for sending us the link. And if you come across ridiculous fishing-related shit on sale, please send links to bent at com so we can keep the sale bin full. Well, we're just about to run out of oxygen on this free dive to the bottom of the mall pond. But for those of you who weren't keeping track of what we picked up along the way, we now know that anglers are just litter bugs with fancy boats. Mm. Yogis commune with Sasquatch or Samsquanch, as I like to say. <laughs> Times were simpler, fishier, and at least slightly more racist in the 30s. And uh, that new technology may be making cast nets easier to throw, but it's not improving on the original design. Oh, Please, please keep those awkward photos, bar nominations, sale bin items, fish news stories, and other highly appreciated emails coming to bent at the mediator.com. And, and do remember, like we said last episode, if you have any questions you want us to address on or off the show, please send them along. We don't promise we'll get to all of them, but we will do our best. Yeah, hit us up on the social medias with the hashtags Degenerate Angler and Bent Podcast. We also just ordered a whole uh, new batch of Degenerate Angler stickers that are just waiting <laughs> to get slapped on your truck or boat. And don't forget about those badass new fish threads in the Meat Eater store. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that original sublime 40 ounces to freedom hoodie that you bought right after Bradley died in 1996. It's, uh, it's time to retire that one. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge-to-edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle.